seats. And when you consider the cross of Jesus Christ, what does it do for you? When you, when you consider that, um, that rough wooden structure uh, designed by the Romans to, con- to execute those whom they consider to be the scum of the earth, uh, the means by which Jesus died outside Jerusalem around AD 33, when you consider the cross of Jesus, what does it do for you? And maybe um, you don't know because you don't often think on it, so you don't really know. And maybe if you do think on it, it doesn't do very much. Uh, There was a man called Isaac who uh, a long time ago wrote a song, and in the song he described what it does for him. Uh, This is what he wrote in his song. He wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain... I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, for Isaac, the cross, how he views the cross, changes everything. When he thinks on the cross, it makes him then reflect on his life and find within his life what is his richest gain, the greatest thing that he has managed to get for himself. But in comparison to the cross, that great thing just melts into insignificance. Even, he says, it's, it's, it's... loss and uh, the cross also reveals for him his pride it it makes him uh, see the pride in his life in a way that he can no longer bear it it pours contempt on his pride Uh, I wonder about what it does for you when you consider the cross of Jesus see today we're Continuing our our series through this book of Isaiah, Isaiah writing in in Jerusalem about 700 years before the cross of Jesus. And and even though he wrote so long before, that it's the the shadow of that cross that looms large in our passage. And especially how, how considering the cross confronts our pride. You see, the, the, the book of Isaiah, the message in the book of Isaiah is wrestling with questions about who you can trust. And the message is, you can trust the Lord God completely to do more than you could ever imagine. Uh, and yet living in that trust, living in, in, in a kind of trust in the Lord in the madness of life is really hard. And, and Isaiah wrestles with the hardness of that. We're, we're in a little kind of um, section in Isaiah um, that, that works a little bit like this. At the beginning of chapter 9, it looks forward to the reign of a righteous king. Then, then our passage confronts the pride in the nation of Israel. Next time, it confronts the pride in the nation of Assyria. And then again, speaks about this future king, this righteous king who is going to come. So, so we're in the kind of second section, and it's important to see how it follows on from what went before. It follows on from God revealing his plan to bring a righteous king. You see, in in this whole section together, the the, the promised king and the confrontation of pride, the the message is, it comes together to say you don't need to do it yourself. You don't need to find it within yourself. You, You can stop thinking that it's all about you and it's all down to you because there is this one who is 
He's so much more competent than you and so much more committed to do you good than you could ever imagine. You can trust the Lord. So in in the first part of the passage, in verse 2, it speaks about light shining into deep darkness. Verse 3 speaks about light that brings an explosion of invincible happiness. Verse 4 speaks about light that smashes the yoke of oppression. The bondage of death being shattered by the coming of the light. And it will all come about in verse 6 because to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. That's the message. God's king is coming. He's a king like no other to bring in a kingdom with no end. This king is going to so kind of renew and restore the whole of everything. The prince of peace bringing in an eternal reign of peace. His his coming kingdom will be called a new creation. His kingdom will not have any pain. And it won't have any oppression. And it won't have any suffering. And it won't have any tears. And he won't have any death. And he will establish it, it says, with justice and righteousness. In his kingdom, all the people in his kingdom will treat one another in the right way. Uh, Not just in in the the right way, but in a way that is is just most kind and most beautiful. Everybody will be invested in the flourishing of everybody else. Of course, though, you might have noticed that the world isn't very much like that, is it? That's not what we see around us. We don't see those values in our society or in other societies. You see, for this new kingdom to come, the mess of non-peace and disintegration in the world that we know it has to be dealt with. For that kingdom to come, the darkness must be separated from the light and the causes of trouble and sorrow must be taken away for the world of peace to be established. See, is that... That, that foundation of a clear vision in verse 6 and 7 of the kingdom that is to come that launches us into our passage today that looks at things that have gone so wrong. Uh, there are a few things for us to note about our passage today. Uh, first thing to help us kind of work out what's going on here is to look at who the message is about. Do you see that in verse 8? Verse 8, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel, all the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Uh, Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, inhabitants of Samaria, four ways of describing uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. We get our bearings here. This is the message from the prophet Isaiah who lives in Jerusalem in Judah in the southern kingdom. What we have is a message about Israel, but it's given to Judah. These people, are, they're reading somebody else's mail. In the UK, that's a criminal offence, I think. Um, but it's something the Old Testament prophets do quite a lot. We're going to see it a lot as we, as we move on through Isaiah. Messages about certain nations, but delivered to another nation. So, so how should the people who live in Judah hear that? Now, I, th- I think it works a little bit like this. Uh, imagine a, a teacher. Um, I know, Mrs. Fairbairn, we'll call her. Um, and she, she, you're, you're all in her class, um, and Mrs. Fairbairn looks over and sees that Mark Slater is chewing gum. So Mrs. Fairbairn says to Mark Slater, if you don't sort that out, you're going to get a detention. All right? She speaks to Mark. But for anybody else in the room who's chewing gum at that time, they need to sit up and take notice, don't they? Uh, I think that's what's going on here. Judah is to hear a message about Israel, 
and hold it up as a mirror to themselves um, and to see what it means for their lives. Uh, it helps us, doesn't it? No, we, we, we are not ancient Israel. We're not ancient Judah. Um, it's not a message directly about us that we're looking at. But the extent to which it reflects our lives, we need to sit up and take notice. That's the first thing to help us work our way into what is being said here. Um, our, our passage gives four pictures of what was happening in the northern kingdom. Uh, and the four pictures, they get sewn together with that repeated phrase. It comes up at the first time at the end of verse 12. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And it comes again in verse 17 and again in verse 21 and the Again, at the end of verse 4 in chapter 10. You know, the, the repetition of the phrase means that every time you hear it, the volume gets cranked up a little bit. Uh, every time you hear it, our attention is being kind of fixed on this part of the message. And so uh, as we go through, that's where we're going to try and fix our attention as we come, uh, as we come to the end of our time. Uh, the, the, these four pictures also kind of build on each other. We'll trace that a little bit. Um, but let, let's, let's start looking at what is said here. The first picture um, Verse 8, I think, to 13 um, is addressing the heart of the problem as the problem of pride. Uh, in the film Titanic, uh, there is a scene when one of the main characters, Jack, um, he stands on top of the ship with his arm. Oh, sorry, Jack. Where has he gone? There he is. Um, his arms spread wide, and what does he shout? Anyone remember what he shouts? I'm the king of the world. There you go. That's it. That's right. It's an iconic moment. Um, I'm going to give you a, a bit of a spoiler alert now. The ship sinks and Jack dies. <laughs> that, that, that kind of sums up the whole of the human story, doesn't it? We kid ourselves that we are master of our lives, king of the world, able to control everything. Then the ship sinks and we die. That's it, isn't it? Isn't that the human story? Self-determination, pride. One writer says it is the new state religion. There's nothing new about it. It was right back there in ancient Israel, wasn't it? Verse 8, the Lord sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say with pride and arrogance of heart. That's the headline. The headline is what is happening in the heart. Everything else that's going on in society finds its root right here. And the situation is this. You see it in verse 11. The Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them. And has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. This is a real kind of succinct summary of a load of history at that time. They were difficult times. Great political turmoil. There was warmongering everywhere. And the nation of Israel formed an alliance with Rezin. And because they joined Rezin's team, they attracted the attention of Rezin's great enemy, the Assyrians. Uh, but, but also there were all kinds of skirmishes all around from the east and from the west. The, the point of it, though, is that the nation of Israel has been attacked and humiliated. Uh, and that behind all of the warmongering is the Lord, it says. The Lord has brought this upon them. Now, we read in the other parts of the Old Testament, the Lord did send prophets to the people of Israel. Prophets with his messages of warning. So I think in verse 9, when it says all the people will know it, I think it's saying the prophets who went to Israel have done their work well. Uh, they have heard the warnings of the Lord, and now those warnings are coming to bear out. And, and our passage brings us to a moment of, of what happens in their hearts as these things are unfolding. Now imagine you're, you're on a ship, and it starts to sink, 
and the message comes out, abandon ship, go to the lifeboats. That's the kind of situation in, in Israel. The ship is sinking. The message is saying, go to the lifeboats, but they don't move. Stay where they are. Uh, this is what they're saying, you see it in verse 10. The bricks have fallen down, but we, we, we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the, the instinct of their response to their trouble is that they will dig deep and try and find it within themselves to do better. That they think they can control their own destiny. They're not going to let these setbacks get in their way. They're going to do better. They're going to do bigger. They're going to get more. Now, what they should have done in verse 13, the people have not returned to the Lord who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. That's what the prophets came, with, came to them. That's the message they brought. The, the prophets came and said, you must turn to the Lord before the disaster. You must seek your God. But they ignored the message and the disaster has come. And even the disaster has begun to come upon them. They, they think they can still manage without him. Now this picture of life in Israel is held up for the people in Jerusalem to look at and see if they see themselves. It's held up for us too to see if we can see ourselves. The, the bricks have fallen down. Things are beginning to crumble around them. As C.S. Lewis said this, he said, or wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When the bricks fall down, when, when life begins to mess with us and we struggle and, and things are going wrong, what, what's our instinctive response? How, how do we respond when, when we face difficulty and pain on the way? Now, the people of Israel, they, they reacted with grit and determination. They were singing, we get knocked down, but we get up again. You're never going to keep us down. We're going to get higher. We're going to do better. We can do it all. Maybe at times we admire that kind of attitude, don't we? When we see it in others, those who shake their fists in the face of adversity and they rise against it. But in Israel, it was arrogance. They didn't seek the Lord. They relied on themselves. The megaphone is being turned up. The volume is getting louder, but they're not listening. And what about for us? When things go wrong, where do we go? Now, this week, I had to post a parcel um, with some urgency. And so I, on Thursday afternoon, I went to the post van in Little Paxton that comes on Thursday afternoon. I walked down to where it goes in the park near the doctor's surgery, and there was no post van. The internet said it was there. The internet lied. It wasn't there. So I went back home, got in my car, drove to St. Neots, paid for parking, uh, went to the post office in St. Neots, and it was closed. Back in the car, drove on. Eventually, I found another post office, and I sent it. But the, the heat was rising within a little bit in those times. Now, how would I react to that setback? Now, do, I, do I push harder? Do I try to do better? Or do I turn to the Lord? It's just a little moment, isn't it? But life is made of little moments. Little moments that reveal what's going on inside us. Of course, big moments happen as well, don't they? Huge, life-changing setbacks. How do we respond when they come to us? Do we, do we look within or do we look up? Or do we hear God calling, shouting, rousing us with his megaphone? 
How about when we hear that the judgment of God is coming? Now, the refrain in, year, in verse 12 is, yet for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. When we hear about God's anger, how do we respond to that? Now, some just dismiss it straight away, close their ears, no, this is no relevance to me. Others say, well, God can't be angry with me because I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I, I, don't, I don't deserve any punishment from God. That is it. They say, we will build. We'll do it ourselves. We can manage. I've, I've done enough. My house is strong enough. I don't need to seek the Lord. I don't need to turn to him. You know, the, the, the coming pictures in this passage will tell about systemic oppression, great evil, great wickedness. But all of that starts right here in this, this first bit. It all starts in the heart, in hearts that have closed to God. It's the root. That's the first picture. It's the root. The next three pictures describe the fruit, the fruit of pollution, destruction, and corruption. The next picture, verses 14 to 17, is a picture of pollution. Now, we know how pollution works, don't we? Uh, something toxic gets introduced into an ecosystem. Some uh, chemical waste is leaked into a river. And when it's leaked in, it doesn't stay there. It spreads, doesn't it? That's what pollution does. It spreads. And, and the pride of heart pollutes the whole of society that's what our second picture shows verse 14 the lord will cut off from israel both head and tail both palm branch and reed in a single day the elder and dignitaries are the head the prophets who teach lies are the tail those who guide this people mislead them and those who are guided are led astray it's a picture plotting pollution spreading it starts with the, the leaders, the influencers in the society, the head and the tail, those who shape the attitudes of the society. It says those who guide this people, but their guidance is false. They teach lies, they mislead, and the pollution spreads because of it. It doesn't stop there with the leaders, but it engulfs. Those who are guided are led astray. Literally, they are swallowed up. What does it look like to be swallowed up like that? Well, verse 17 says, everyone is ungodly and wicked, every mouth speaks folly. And the emphasis is on the everyone. It's the, the all manner of people across the whole of the society. It, it's it's the, the polar opposite of the picture in verse 7. In verse 7, there's this coming kingdom of justice and righteousness and endless peace. But this is all of that gone and turned upside down. As the people in Jerusalem hear the message about Israel, they should be asked, well, what about us? Have we been swallowed up? Well, of course, we should ask the same ourselves, shouldn't we? Uh, the society we live in exerts massive influence on us. Can't help it. It's the, the air that we breathe we, from, from what's happening with, with politics and in the media and the, the news that we read and the films we watch and the TV programs and the adverts and, and what happens on social media. Uh, the whole of our society exerts an influence on us. Uh, I read recently someone saying that contemporary society picks and chooses the desires it would like to see as discipline. Uh, our society is deciding what we want. Now, for example, you might kind of think, well, what, why has there been such a huge increase in the number of people who are vegetarians and vegans? It's changed massively in my lifetime. No, no, why is that? It's because society exerting influence. It's shaping opinion, shaping desires. Smoking is a great example, isn't it? 
a time when everyone everywhere smoked. That was just what you did. Uh, but, but society has shaped our values so that today smoking has become a kind of private and an outside thing. Uh, the book I read said this. It said, in many soci- settings, society seems far readier by various programs and prohibitions to help discipline our desire, say, for cigarettes than our desire for our neighbor's spouse. And when we find it hard to accept biblical morality, especially where it contrasts contemporary values, it could be because we've been swallowed up. When, when we view our, our, our money, our time, our resources as, as our own to serve our own pleasures and not to serve the needs of our neighbours, it could be because we've been swallowed up. Uh, when our lives aren't happily given for the flourishing of others and, and the best that we do is grumpily squeezed out and our motives are all askew and our secret thoughts are are violent and bitter, and we, we, we find that rush of pleasure in the fall of somebody else. could be because we've been swallowed up. And when we look at our desires, we might see how far the pollution spreads. But we might find that we, too, have been swallowed. And the refrain rings out at the end of verse 17. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Now we come to the third picture, verse 18 to 21. A picture that picks up that kind of ubiquitous wickedness in verse 17 and then conveys its destructive impact with a vivid image. Verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. Last summer we saw the devastating effect of wildfires across southern Europe. Fires that start so small, don't they? And then very rapidly grow until they're uncontrollable. That's what's being described here, verse 18, this fire that starts with the briars and the thorns, but quickly it sets the forest thickets ablaze, and then the the whole forest gets consumed, it rolls upwards in a column of smoke, and all that is left is the scorched earth behind. That's what wickedness does to a society. Verse 19 says, the people will be fueled for the fire. I think we, we so often struggle to see wickedness in its true colors. A wickedness is, is a rebellion against the way that God has ordered everything. So it can only ever be destructive. And we get lured into it, lured into wicked habits and desires. As though we can somehow find happiness when we go there. And we indulge our sinful natures, but when we do, we become blind to what we unleash. Like a wildfire, once set ablaze, it can be near impossible to extinguish. Once we form sinful habits, they they start to control us. And and the devastation is felt across human relationships. It's people who suffer when wickedness is unchecked. Fuel for the fire. Now, how how is that so? Well, verse 19 says they will not spare one another. They won't spare one another. You remember the, the root of all this is pride in the heart. And pride is, by nature, competitive. Pride seeks more than the next person. It, it, it craves the feeling of superiority. Whatever that is, whatever the more is, whether it's more money or more attention or more pity, it's just to have more than the next person. And so the pride-filled heart is, is turned on itself, uh, loving itself above everything else. That, that's why it says they will not spare one another because the, the love that should go out to others is broken and twisted back on itself. So they won't spare, they won't have true pity for the needs of others. 
And, and verse 20 tells a sorry tale. But verse 20 that says, On the right they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but not be satisfied. So up to date, isn't it? So it's consumption without satisfaction. That's what's described here. Isn't that our society? All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never enough. Now, we live in this first world nation with more wealth, more goods, more stuff at our disposal than any point in history. We are loaded with things and we gorge ourselves on them and we're always grasping for more. And when we get it, it's not enough. Always wanting more. Cutting to the right, cutting to the left, eating, but we're still hungry, aren't we? Never satisfied. Never enough. Verse 20 says, each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. Or better, the flesh of their own arm. They're eating their arms, it's the madness of it. This pride-driven wickedness, it ruins people. It's bad for you. It diminishes you as a person. We're made to love God and to love others, but pride bends that all back so that I love me and I use others to make me feel better about me. It's eating your own arm. Relationships crumble with the onslaught of it. That's what verse 21 is showing. Manasseh feeding on Ephraim, Ephraim on Manasseh, together turning against Judah, everyone against everyone, using and abusing. People treated like food. Like objects to feed upon, not divine image bearers to love and respect. And the tragedy of verse 21 is that it's God's people being described. These are people who have experienced his grace. People who have heard his laws of love and, and yet they've mangled it. Wouldn't happen today, would it, among God's people in the church? We wouldn't feed on each other, would we? God is not pleased with this. And notice that the fire has two causes. It's the fire of wickedness that ruins people, but verse 19 says, by the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched. There's wickedness, it is self-destructive, but it is so by the will of God. Now, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's Wrath against wickedness is seen in that he gives people over to their wickedness. Now, God has designed and ordered the world to work in a way that if you flaunt his laws, it brings disaster. And God's anger is seen in that he just steps back and lets sin bring its havoc. His anger is seen in that God gives people the very worst possible thing. He gives people what they want. Now, people want to remove God from their relationships and from their thinking and from their decisions. They want to get rid of God, and God allows it. And the result is broken relationships. Even the best of human relationships are conflicted and complicated. And verse 21 ends, Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And we come to the final picture, the fourth picture. This is the, the mature fruit of a society uh, that grows out of those pride-filled hearts. It, it describes unjust lawmakers, oppressive decrees. It's systemic corruption now. The whole society is organized and pitted against the most vulnerable, uh, designed in order so that uh, to deprive the poor of their rights 
and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. When a society gets to that point, when oppression is systemic, there is no escape, is there? Now, where can the oppressed go when the oppression is the society? And again, at the end of verse 4, for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. A Judah is to hear this message about Israel and use it as a mirror to see themselves. But this message doesn't just show themselves, it also shows how the Lord deals with the ugliness of wickedness in the world. You might remember at the end of verse 7, it speaks about the Lord Almighty's zeal. The Lord's passion project is to bring his king. A king like no other to reign over a kingdom with no end. And for the new kingdom to come... The mess of the world as it is must be cleared up. And so the Lord will do that. Verse 14, the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail. The Lord is the one who will remove sources that pollute society. Verse 17, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. And the point is there aren't any exceptions. The Lord isn't going to show favoritism. A young and old, rich and poor, the famous and the unknown, the somebodies and the nobodies, everyone is wicked. That's not just ancient Israel. The Bible tells us repeatedly that the, the human heart is laden with sin. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Everyone is wicked and there's not an excuse. And the wickedness provokes the Lord to anger. Verse 19, the burning anger at human wickedness. But there's some restraint. Now that that refrain, let's come back and look on that refrain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. This tells us that, that a sentence of condemnation has been passed already. Back in in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord in heaven with the seraphim around him crying out, Holy, 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 Lord Almighty. The God who is of perfect holiness has passed a sentence on these people. A sentence that their sin warrants his wrath. And the holy God has has no room for even the slightest hint of injustice. There is pure, perfect justice in his anger. See, we have to keep reminding ourselves, God is not like us. His anger is not like ours. It's not random, it's not out of proportion, it's not uncontrolled. His anger is is the steady and constant abhorrence at everything that opposes his goodness. His hand is raised over those whose wickedness has justly provoked him. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. The things that are described here, the destruction and the devastation, the ways that people have been given over to suffer the effects of their wickedness, for all of this, His anger is not turned away. And that tells us that the justice of God is not yet satisfied. The kingdom of righteousness cannot yet be established while this wickedness remains. And so his anger is not turned away. His anger hangs over all the people. And we ask, well, why doesn't he sort it out? Why doesn't that upraised hand fall? There's nothing between them and that hand. It's a hand, it's God's hand. Of divine wrath. And if it were to come down upon them. There is nothing they can do to escape it. 
This is, is the, the hand of God, the omnipotent God who has all the power. The hand of the one who shaped the cosmos, who formed the universe. Now, if their strength were multiplied by millions, they could not hold back this hand. If it falls, it will fall. But it hangs. And the only thing that holds the hand up is that God has not yet decided for it to fall. Why? Why a pause? Why is that delay? Why is the hand still upraised? We might ask today, it's been still upraised for so long. Why? Well, if we listen carefully, we'll hear it. At the beginning of chapter 10, the very first word is the word woe. Difficult to convey the sense of it. We've seen it before in Isaiah, but it's, it's a funeral cry. It's a lament of grief. God is speaking. The Lord himself is grieving over the state of these people. He calls them in verse 2, my people. See, his hand has not fallen because he has an attachment to them. He holds up his hand of wrath because of his heart of grace. And asks them to consider their options. You see that in verse 3? Asks them, what will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. If they wait for that day, he says, it will be too late. If they wait for the day of reckoning, there will be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And everything they have amassed for themselves in their lives, all their achievements and everything, it will count for nothing. And many of them did wait. Verse 13, people have not returned to him who struck them. They've not sought the Lord Almighty. It's a terrible story. At the end, already written for those who lived so long ago. But what about us here? What will be the end of our story? We can't excuse ourselves as if we somehow, like, as an exception to everyone else who has lived, as we somehow have avoided the paths of sin. Everyone is wicked. It's not nice to hear that, is it? We might squirm at the bluntness of it. Just because it's not nice doesn't mean it's not true. His anger is turned to us. His hand is raised up, lifted up, still lifted up. What do you make of that? In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2, it asks, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Do you? goes on. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And God's hand is still upraised because he's being patient. And we take every next breath because he is being patient. And what will we do with his patience? And if the answer is we will do nothing, Romans 2 continues. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. What will you do when the day of reckoning comes? And what would happen if they did seek the Lord? What would happen if they did turn to him? That hand of wrath must still fall. A sentence of condemnation has been passed. Sin must face God's anger. 
But verse 6 says, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The one that Isaiah has spoken of as the Emmanuel child. The God come to be with us child. The God himself in our flesh. And the government will be on his shoulders. If we turn to him, it means if we turn to him, he will take responsibility for everything on his shoulders. And the child was born in Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth. And before he took to his throne, he took upon his shoulders the cross. The son, the son who is given to rule over an eternal kingdom of peace, he comes first to meet the pride lodged in the hearts of people. His justice come to meet the injustice spread through society. His righteousness to meet all destructive wickedness. He came to take all the responsibility to bring in his kingdom. And so he was the one who took up his cross. And he carried it up the hill to Golgotha. And he submitted himself to the taunts. He allowed his back to be ripped open. The thorns to be pressed into his head. The nails to be hammered into his hands and his feet. The suffocating humiliation as naked he gasped for his breath on the cross. And then giving his last breath. Giving his life. Because there on the cross, Jesus had put himself under the hand of God's wrath. And he bid that it fall down on him. That was the cup that made him sweat blood in the garden. Taken and drained. It's the cup of God's anger. The hand of divine fury against all human wickedness came down on Calvary. Came down on the son who was given for us. See it's there at the cross. That the anger of God is turned away. It's only there. If there is ever to be an escape from the wrath of God. And sinful people like me need that escape. If there is ever an escape. It can only be found in the death of the son of God. If you don't go to Christ for refuge then the anger of God remains stretched over you. And on the day of reckoning, there will be no hope. There are only two places where that hand of God's anger can fall. Either on Christ at Calvary, or on you on Judgment Day. And the difference between the two is where you put your trust. Where you put your trust now. If a child has been born, it happened in history, the son given, that the king came and he carries his kingdom. And he will make everything new. And he will establish imperishable bliss. And he is given now for us to believe upon. For us to trust him. John writes in his gospel. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. And now the heart of God yearns for your repentance. He grieves over your sin. He wants you to turn doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. The punishment of sin, that is his strange work. It doesn't come from his heart. So ask again. When you consider the cross of Christ, what does it do for you? And we're going to continue to think on that as we move to share in the meal that our Lord Jesus commanded us to. See, this, this meal, simple meal, there's some bread and some, well, some fruit juice. 
Now, this simple meal is a meal that tells to us the story of how God's anger has been turned away through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is a meal which proclaims to us the message that for those who trust Jesus, then your sins, however great, however many, however weighty, however shameful, your sin without remainder has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now our sins deserve the upraised hand of God's anger to fall on us, but it has fallen on Christ. So there is now no condemnation for those who trust Jesus. He's taken it from us. And he has made a way for us to enter into his eternal kingdom. When you consider the cross of Jesus, what does it do for you? We are going to sing together Isaac's song as we reflect upon that. As the musicians come up, the words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride.